Um, but tonight we're diving back into 1 Timothy. This is where we left off in, uh, in November before we started our Christmas series. And we're going to finish chapter 6 by the end of January. At least that's the, that's the plan. Because um, we got some fun stuff coming down the tracks for February. Um, and by coming down the tracks, I mean we're working on it. <laughs> so uh, let's read our passage tonight. We're in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Um, so we got the last chapter. We're going to finish it uh, hopefully in four weeks, and then we'll, we'll have another book under our belts. Uh, praise the Lord. So let's read 1 Timothy 6, 1 through 5. It says, Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them, despise the, or let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit, these things teach and exhort. If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is profound, or he's proud, he's profound, yeah, he's proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. And I'm going to need water here before too long, so I'm going to... I'm going to take care of that. Um, so what we see from this passage is instructions on how to deal with two t- different types of people. At its most basic, that's what you see. And that's why I titled tonight's message, Dealing with Two Kinds of People. Because that's what we're talking about. Not that these are the only two kinds of people you'll have to deal with in life. They're just two kinds of people you, you might come across. And to be honest, they, they sort of seem un- unrelated, but... I'll try to keep my, or I'll try to try my best to, to wrap them up together in a cohesive way at the end. And that shouldn't be too difficult because this passage is sort of a continuation of the last passage we covered in chapter 5. I know that was like a month and a half ago. Um, but the focus here is on what to do with the any man that teaches otherwise in verse 3. And, and those who teach otherwise are just the people who teach things other than the these things that Paul tells Timothy to teach in verse 2. In general, these things shows up, the, the phrase these things shows up like 10 times throughout the two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. Um, and Timothy's commanded to remember these things, teach these things, observe these things, meditate on these things, and charge others to follow these things. And specifically, the these things he, says, he mentions here in 1 Timothy 6.2 is most likely just referring to the things Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, verse 22, through chapter 6, verse 2. Those are the things he mentioned since the last time he used the phrase these things in, in chapter 5 and verse 21. That's what we talked about back in November. Uh, we, we started talking about those things as we made our way through the end of chapter 5. That's when Paul told Timothy to observe impartiality in how he deals with people and, and people from different walks of life. And that carries over to what we talked about tonight, uh, <clears throat> or what we're going to talk about tonight in this first point, because this first point is just... A, a type of person that, that Timothy is told to deal with and to, to, to love and to teach. And so what we find in verses 1 and 2 is just one more group of people that Paul instructs Timothy on how to deal with and how to deal with them impartially. And then in verses 3 through 5, we'll get to the core of the passage, but it still just contains instructions on how to deal with the group of people who teach the wrong things. Um, so keep that in mind as we dig in, um, in case these seem unrelated. They kind of are, but in the grand scheme of of things beyond the passage we're in right now, it all, it all sort of fits together. So the first kind of people we have to deal with is point number one, those you serve. 
And that's what we see in verses 1 through 2. Um, let's read that again, because I talked a lot. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, that the name of God and his doctrine be not blasphemed. And they that have believing masters, let them not despise them, because they are brethren, but rather do them service, because they are faithful and beloved, partakers of the benefit. These things teach and exhort. And there are a few places like this in Scripture where some people get tripped up because we're talking about servants under the yoke. So the passage isn't directly talking about a person who's, who's being paid to work a job. So when we run into passages like this, I find it helpful to examine the passage from the three different applications of Scripture. We'll look at it historically, doctrinally, and practically. Because we're talking about servants under the yoke. We're talking about people that we would consider to be slaves. But we don't need to apologize for what the Bible says. On the contrary, we just need to take great care to understand what it says so we can get an accurate idea of how it applies to us. And so let's look at this passage historically, and, and hopefully this will help make some sense of, of what Paul's saying here. Um, and that's, that's this first subsection, letter A, historically. And what I mean by historically is we're just getting an understanding of what was happening when Paul wrote this back in the first century. Because we can't ever forget that Paul was a real person who wrote real letters to real people. And here in 1 Timothy, Paul was writing to Timothy, the pastor of the church at Ephesus. And this letter includes instructions to Timothy on how to lead the people of his church through the various life situations through which they lived. And to get the understanding here of what this passage is saying in a historical context, we just need to understand how the word servant is used in Scripture. Because the word servant, like I said, sometimes refers to what we would think of as a slave, someone who had to work without being paid. And that's especially true when the word master shows up in the same context. And that's what we see here. The word servant here is referring to a bond servant, someone who isn't or is, who, who is working, but isn't working like a nine-to-five job and being paid a wage and then going home. The Bible often uses the word hireling to refer to that kind of servant, someone who's being paid for their labor. But a bond servant isn't paid for their labor. That's why they're, they're bound. They're, it's a, it's, they're under a bond. They're bound to serve, typically as a way of paying for something else. Like when Jacob agreed to work for Laban, for seven years, he says in, or it says in Genesis 29, verse 18, And Jacob loved Rachel and said, I will serve thee seven years for Rachel, thy younger daughter. So he had ag agreed to do that work in payment for marrying Laban's daughter. And throughout Paul's writings, Paul occasionally addresses people who have an occupation as servants, the same way he writes to people who fill other roles in society. And that's what's going on in this passage. He's writing to people who are servants under the yoke of another person. This isn't the only time he writes to servants. For example, in Colossians 3.2, he says, Servants, obey in all things your masters, according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. So Paul tells servants who are saved to obey their masters according to the flesh. So this isn't like some sort of spiritual master that you're learning from. Like, no, this is, this is a master, somebody who's uh, putting you to work. And Paul tells them to obey their masters according to the flesh. And in 1 Timothy 6, he's telling them to honor their masters. And the reason why they're to do that is so the name of God and his doctrine aren't blasphemed. So Paul is just giving people who have this role in society instruction on how to have a good testimony for the Lord. Specifically, he's telling Timothy how to help these people, 
have good in, or have a good testimony for the Lord. And 1 Corinthians gets into this discussion as well in chapter 7, um, verses 20 through 24 says, Let every man abide in the same calling where he, wherein he was called. Art thou called being a servant? Care not for it, but if thou mayest be made free, use it rather. For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. And so notice in this passage that no one is called by God to be a servant to someone else. But, in this, this, but this passage is talking to people who are servants who are called in the Lord. So God is calling people to him, but he calls everyone to him. It doesn't matter if they're free or, or bound in servitude. So it's just addressing saved people who are servants to other people. And they're to use that role as a servant to shine the light of Christ that's inside them because they're saved. We'll circle back to this picture in a minute, but we're all free in Christ spiritually. That's why we're the Lord's freemen. So we're to use our circumstances in life to reach the world around us and picture our relationship with him. And we kind of talked about this when we were in 1 Timothy 5 a couple weeks ago. The world can't see our relationship with God directly because it's a spiritual relationship. It's spiritual in nature. But what the world can see is how we act in this life and how we treat the people we're associated with. And God wants us to use the way we live as a picture of our relationship with him. So we have to live the way the Bible tells us to, and we have to live out our relationships with other people the way he tells us to if we want to properly put Christ on display. And these instructions to servants that we see from Paul throughout his letters simply describe how someone living in the role of a servant should act toward their master to best put Christ on display. The same way other parts of his letters describe how spouses should act towards one another the same way other parts of his letters describe how children and parents should interact, the same way 1 Timothy 5 discussed how pastors and church members are to work together. In 1 Timothy 6 and, and these other places we've been looking at, the Bible's description of someone in the role of a servant is someone who obeys their master, someone who honors their master, because ultimately they're supposed to be doing whatever they're doing for the Lord as a way to put him on display so lost people can understand who he is. God wants to use them as a picture that has a good testimony, as a good representative so other people can see a little bit about who God is through the life of that person. And so especially in this case, in 1 Timothy 6, when the master is also a believer, because fighting with another believer is, is always a bad testimony to the world, always. It doesn't shine a good light on the body of Christ if we're fighting with one another regardless of what roles we find ourselves in in society. And none of this, by the way, justifies the practice of slavery today, by the way. That's where people get tripped up. They see, well, Paul's telling servants to obey their master, so he must be pro-slavery. Well, you're, you're, you're adding a lot into what Paul's saying to arrive at that conclusion. Hopefully we're all on the same page that a human being should never claim to own another human being. That's, that's obviously wrong. God's not commanding that people who are held as sex slaves submit to their oppressors. A bondservant is just a person who works without being paid. Maybe they're working to pay off a debt they owe. Maybe they're working to earn something like Jacob worked for a wife. Or maybe they're just working for a roof over their head and some food on the table. The Bible is just recognizing that this type of servanthood exists and Paul's providing instructions for Christians living in those conditions. Because as Christians, we're to shine as the light of Christ regardless of what our circumstances are. 
regardless of where you find yourself in life, whether, whether you're rich or poor, you're supposed to shine the light of Christ. And if that's God expe- God's expectation of a person who lives as a servant, you better believe that's God's expectation of you. And, and that idea bleeds into this next section. So let's talk more about the picture here by looking at the passage doctrinally, and that's letter B. And what I mean by doctrinally is just getting an understanding of what God is demonstrating or explaining or teaching in this passage. More generally, understanding the doctrinal context is just trying to understand what God is teaching through this instruction. And this is actually pretty clear when you look at the related passages, uh, some of which we already looked at in, in Paul's other letters. So the instruction to servants to honor and obey their masters is just going to point us at our instructions to honor and obey our master. And our master is obviously Jesus Christ. If we look again in 1 Corinthians 7, uh, verses 22 through 24, it says, For he that is called in the Lord being a servant is the Lord's freeman. Likewise, also he that is called being free is Christ's servant. Ye are bought with a price. Be not ye the servants of men. Brethren, let every man wherein he is called therein abide with God. So we are Christ's servants. And yes, the picture is slavery, as weird as that might sound, because verse 23 says that we are bought with a price. 1 Timothy 2.6 says that he gave himself a ransom for all. He paid for us. That's what his sacrifice on the cross did. He paid the price for you and me. He paid the price for all of us. But here's where the picture of our relationship with Christ and slavery breaks down. Because Jesus doesn't force you to go along with him. He provides you with the choice in the matter. So just because he paid the price for everyone doesn't mean that everyone has to give their lives to him. John 1.12 tells us that we have to receive him. And the Bible is absolutely clear on how it is that you receive him. Romans 10.9 and 10 says that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you receive him when you believe that his sacrifice was enough to pay for your sins, and you confess with your mouth that he's the Lord of your life because of the price he paid. But man, let me warn you if you're in here and you haven't done that yet. When you do that, you confess that he's Lord. When you tell him that he's your Lord, you're saying, you're in charge. You're my master. You're the one who gets to call the shots in my life. So if you've given your life to Christ, he owns you. You belong to him. You're his now. And if you've never done that, you might be thinking, why would anyone do that? Well, it's not just a one-way trade like that might sound. First John 5, uh, 11 and 12 says, and this is the record that God hath given to us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. And he that hath the Son hath life, and he that hath not the Son of God hath not life. So when you give your life to Christ, he gives his life right back to you. You're making the decision to trade your broken, sinful, aimless life for his life of freedom and purpose. And that's the balance that we need to understand with this picture. Because yes, when we submit ourselves to Christ and give our lives to him, that's a serious deal. Luke 9.23 says that if we do that, we have to deny ourselves, take up our cross, daily and follow him because our life isn't our own anymore. Christ paid for it and we agreed to give it over to him. But that's balanced with the fact that he loves us. And Hebrews 12:7 is clear that God treats us as his sons, 
as his children rather than as his servants. But that doesn't mean that he doesn't want us to serve him. No, he, he still wants us to follow after him and do what he asks us to. And because we've given our lives to him, we don't, we don't really have the right to tell him no when he asks us to do something. But too often we do. And, and he'll allow us to choose whether or not to follow him at every turn. Unlike what most of us think of when we imagine slavery, Jesus Christ will never force you to do anything. God has always wanted humans to choose to follow him from the very beginning. But if we want to live the fulfilling, fruitful life that he wants us to live, we'll choose to follow him and, and do what he asks. And when he asks us to take his yoke upon ourselves in Matthew 11, um, we can understand what that means. Matthew 11, 29 and 30, Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And it's because he loves us and treats us as his sons that his yoke is so easy and his burden is light. He just wants to use us. All we have to do is let him. He wants to use our lives to accomplish things, and we just have to agree to let him do that. And do yourself a favor. Don't fall for what many people say about Jesus' yoke here when he, when he says to take his yoke upon, him, or upon us. Years ago, back when every youth pastor wanted to be Rob Bell, um, I remember seeing a Rob Bell video in our youth group uh, where he explained that the yoke Jesus was referring to was, was something called the rabbi's yoke. He explained that a rabbi's yoke was just their teaching. It was their interpretation of scripture. And when when a rabbi takes an apprentice, he gives them their yoke, and that, that apprentice teaches the interpretation of the rabbi that he gave them. When a rabbi took a disciple, that disciple just carried their yoke by, by teaching that interpretation. So Rob Bell said that what Jesus was really teaching here that if, is that if we want to be his disciples, we just have to teach his interpretation of Scripture. And that sounds good, and it became a pretty common thing that people think Jesus was saying here. The problem is you just don't, you don't find that definition of the word yoke anywhere in scripture. You look it up, the only definition you're going to find is the thing that connects beasts of burden to the machines that are plowing fields and doing stuff like that. Taking Jesus' yoke upon us is a burden, and it means work for us, but it means we're doing work for him. If we take his yoke, the thing we're attached to while we're doing work is accomplishing something for the Lord. And that's why we're to serve him in everything that we do, with singleness of heart, keeping our hearts and minds focused on the things that God wants us to focus on so that we can keep our lives pointed in the right direction and accomplish the things that he wants us to accomplish. And that brings us to understanding this passage practically. And this is where the rubber meets the road because the practical context is how you apply this passage and what it's saying to your personal everyday life. And the primary way we're going to do that is by talking about your relationship with your employer. And we can see that further discussed in Ephesians 6, uh, verses 5 through 9. It says, Servants, be obedient to them that are your masters according to the flesh. There's that phrase again. With fear and trembling and singleness of your heart as unto Christ, not with eye service as men pleasers, but as the servants of Christ doing the will of God from the heart, with goodwill doing service as to the Lord and not to men knowing that whatsoever good thing any man doeth, the same shall he receive of the Lord, whether he be bond or free. And ye masters do the same things unto them, forbearing threatening, knowing that your master also is in heaven, neither is their respective persons with him. And you'll notice the similarities in what Paul's saying in Ephesians with the other passages uh, 
of, of servants that we, we looked at in his other letters. The idea is simple. We're supposed to obey those who are in authority over us in our work environments, not with eye service, not as men pleasers, which just means don't be a suck up. <laughs> don't lollygag around until your boss walks by and then act like you're busy so that he thinks highly of you. No, if you're a Christian, that's, that's not why you're at work. You're at work so you can win people to Christ and shine his light to them. And a really easy way of helping yourself do that is by actually doing your job and doing it well. Is it true that the actual thing you're doing at your job is of no eternal importance? Well, that might be a question for a different day, but, but yes, the answer is yes. Unless you're blessed with being able to work in ministry or work with helping people, uh, chances are good that you know, the product you're making isn't going to last into eternity. Um, I know a lot of people work with garage doors and, and foam in here. That stuff isn't going to make it into heaven. Um, mostly because we don't need cars. But uh, anyways, in and of itself, the, the product you're making or whatever is probably worthless when you look at it from an internal perspective. And I don't say that to remove all motivation for you to do your job. I say that because I want to understand that I want us to understand that how we do our job can, can make an eternal difference in the lives of the people we work with. Even if our lives don't, or our jobs don't seem to be of eternal importance, how we do them can make a difference in the lives of people if we do them and do our jobs for the, for the Lord. If you wake up every morning and ask God to use your day at work for his glory, he can, he can. And if you ask him to provide you with opportunities to represent him to the people around you, he can. So yes, do a good job at work. You should be the best worker there, but not because God cares one little bit about the product you're making or whatever. But you should do a good job so that you can build a reputation of integrity and positive relationships with the people around you. Because remember, the people around you can't see your relationship with God, at least not very well, because it's a spiritual thing. But if they see you working hard and respecting your boss, then it it won't shock them when you tell them that you serve the Lord and submit to his authority. What will come as a shock to them, though, is if you tell them you serve the Lord and then they watch you screw around at work and flip off your boss when his back is turned. Those two things are hard to reconcile. They can't see you disrespecting the guy you work for that they can see and then think that you're respecting the guy you work for that they can't see. So if you want to represent Christ at work, you have to live up to the picture that God is trying to make with your relationship with your boss. That's why we're to honor our quote-unquote masters according to the flesh. That's why Colossians 3.23 says we're to do whatsoever ye do heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. This doesn't mean you can't quit your job when you find a better job or when you feel your employer is overstepping their authority into areas of your life in which they don't belong. By the way, I'm not trying to say you have to do everything your employer says when they say you have to do something. This just means that you can't, or this doesn't mean that you can't ask your boss for a raise when you feel like you deserve one. It just means in this context of employment, you just have to be an honest, diligent worker who outwardly respects your employer if you want to be an accurate representation of Christ to the other people that you work with. You don't have to treat them like they're God and have control over every area of your life. You just have to be respectful, especially when their back is turned and other people are watching you. Um, because You'll, you'll, you'll paint a bad picture of you submitting to authority if you don't. And, that, and this doesn't give saved employees an excuse to be jerks to their employees either. And a lot of you work for Vinny, so um, 
Here we go. Colossians 4.1. Sorry, dude. Masters, Colossians 4.1. Masters, give unto your servants that which is just and equal, knowing that ye also have a master in heaven. So this principle goes both ways. So if you ever find yourself in the situation where you have the workplace authority over others, man, don't forget that you're now representing the authority that Christ has over you when you exercise your authority over others. So don't go on a power trip and mess up that picture because Jesus never goes on a power trip with you. So our relationship with those we serve, and on the flip side, our relationship with those who serve us, those relationships should properly picture our relationship with Christ. And those relationships should shine light on who he is and who he wants us to be. But Paul's conversation shifts in the passage in in verse 3, and it shifts to talking about, number two, those you should avoid. And our relationship with those we should avoid is, is also an important one to consider. Let's read verses 3 through 5 again. It says, If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. So we're talking about people we should withdraw ourselves from. And our willingness to withdraw from them has some real impacts on our testimony. But Paul lets us know who we're talking about. Like I said at the beginning, we're told to withdraw from those who teach otherwise. So it's going to be people who teach things other than these things that he tells Timothy to teach in verse 2. We talked about what those things were. And if anyone in Timothy's ministry teaches otherwise, he was told to withdraw from that person, because that person who's teaching otherwise is not consenting to wholesome words. Because we know where we can find wholesome words, we can only find those in the Word of God. And what Paul is letting us know is that not everyone who claims to teach the Word of God is actually teaching the wholesome words of God. That's why Paul's instructions to Titus in Titus 1 are so important when he lays out the qualifications of a pastor. Titus 1 verses 9 through 11 says, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching the things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. So those guys will exist. Those guys who teach what they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. And filthy lucre is just money, power, it's fame. But at the end of the day, they're doing what they do for what they can get out of it. And that's what Paul is getting at when he says in 1 Timothy 6.5 that they are supposing that gain is godliness. And these are the guys that should be avoided, no matter how many followers they have on social media, because their large gain of followers should not be mistaken as true godliness. And the reason why these guys need to be withdrawn from and avoided is because they end up doing nothing but causing trouble for the body of Christ. They're proud. They think they're smarter than what they actually are. They do nothing but ask questions and stir up trouble that lead to envy, strife, railing, and evil surmisings. They pervert and corrupt people's minds with bad doctrine. And this type of evil communication tends to corrupt good manners, like 1 Corinthians 15.33 says. And when the body of Christ has its manners corrupted, it doesn't do things the way it should. The relationships between various people in the body of Christ gets messed up. Uh, Look at what Philippians 2.3 says. It says, Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem other better than themselves. 
that's how we're supposed to treat each other. But when we let these proud guys who do nothing but stir up strife have influence in our church body, we end up with strife. Surprising. Who knew? Well, Paul did. So Paul tells Timothy, the pastor of the church, to withdraw from those guys. And yes, that's to protect Timothy, but it's also mainly to protect his church. But this isn't just something for pastors to worry about. This is something for every member of the church to be looking out for. So your response should also be to withdraw yourself from influences that are geared to stir up strife between fellow church members. Paul writes to the Thessalonians uh, in 2 Thessalonians 3, and this time he's writing to the whole church. He's not just writing to the pastor. Uh, Verse 6 says, Now we command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye, remember ye is plural, ye withdraw yourselves from every brother that walketh disorderly, and not after the tradition which he received of us. And if you look down in verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3, it says, If any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man, and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. And unfortunately, this kind of thing has to happen in our church body, or it has had to happen in our church body before. I was actually just talking with Vinny about it before tonight. Um, Guys that had ministry positions of influence abused those positions to try to increase their influence, and that resulted in strife in our body. So in accordance with what the Bible tells church leaders to do, those guys were noted, and we as a church body had to withdraw from them. And that's an incredibly important topic for you to study on your own if you're wanting to serve in ministry leadership down the line. You have to understand that what the Bible says about situations like that and says about people like that. Because the Bible assures us that guys like this exist, and dealing with them the way the Bible tells us to, it's uncomfortable. It's not fun. But we have to be prepared to do what's best for the body of Christ rather than what we might feel is, that is easiest for ourselves. Because believe it or not, God cares about his body. He cares about his body a lot. And if you're a leader in any kind of capacity, or planning to be someday, you have to be diligent to make sure that you care about his body as well. And when you do, you'll have the motivation to do whatever you need to do uh, in your service to him and his body, even when it's uncomfortable. So when it comes to those you serve, whether we're talking in a secular employment context with work at your boss, or we're talking in a ministry context with your pastor or other ministry leader, we need to make sure we're honoring those we're serving and honoring those who are serving us. Uh, We need to do that so we have a good testimony and so our lives paint an accurate picture uh, to those around us. We, We do that so they can understand a little bit about who Jesus is from the way we're living our life. That's what God expects us to do. That's shining your light before all men. And when it comes to those we should avoid, well, we have to avoid them. And as difficult as that might be, If, for example, our friends find themselves walking disorderly or teaching things they shouldn't, we just have to put put our personal feelings aside and do what's best for Jesus' body. And look, I'm not saying that when someone does something or teaches something that you think is wrong or harmful, you should just go jump their shark about it and and kick them out of your life. I coined that phrase, by the way, jump their shark. But don't ignore it either. You don't ignore situations like that. You go talk to them about it. You might find out that you're wrong. And you might find out that they're wrong. The point is you have to find out why they're doing what they're doing. Are they trying to cause strife and division or are they genuinely trying to follow the Lord and serve the body? And if it becomes clear that they're just trying to cause strife and division, well, you mark them and withdraw from them and and talk to your other leaders about how to handle that situation. Uh, don't, don't, 
Don't be one of those guys who's like, nope, I have to shun you because you said something about baptism that I disagree with. Like, no, talk to people when you have disagreements. Talk to people when they say something that sounds weird to you. Points one and two might not seem directly related, and that's because they're not necessarily. But the point of tonight's message is that we, we need to go to the Bible to figure out how to handle our relationships with other people. You want to be a good husband or wife? You go to the Bible to learn how to approach that relationship. You want to be a better friend? See what the Bible says about being a friend to others. You want to understand how you should treat your boss or your employees? See what the Bible has to say practically about those work relationships. And you want to see what you should do with people who are actively harming your church family? See what the Bible says about that. We need to seek out the words of God on dealing with our relationship. And then here's the kicker. We actually have to do what it says. If we're willing to do that, well, we'll see success in our relationships. But again, that success will be success as the Bible defines it, not as we define it, not as we feel it should be. Joshua 1.8 is the only verse in the Bible that mentions the word success. God tells Joshua in verse 8, he says, the book, This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do, all, or to do according to all that is written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. So man, you want success? Do what the Bible says. That might not always appear successful, but it will be according to the Bible, especially with the point on those who you should avoid. If you want to do, or if you, if you do what that says, you might lose some friends when you withdraw yourself from people. I know I've lost friends that were close friends with me for years when they decided to throw our church under the bus. Um, but I know I'm better for it because that's what the Bible tells me. So regardless of how I feel about the situation, I can just trust in the words of God and trust that, you know, when, when we do what God tells us to do, we're doing what we're doing what he knows is best because at the end of the day, we understand that God understands relationships and how they should be handled much better than I do. We just need to have faith that God knows what he's talking about. We need to seek out what his words say about our life situations and then do what his words say. That's life. It really is that simple. We just need to focus on him and allow him to direct our life. Let's pray. God, we thank you for, man, the simplicity of your word and how how simple your expectations are. You, your Bible, your, your words are sufficient for us, Lord, and we understand that, man, if we just do what they say and we be doers of the word and not hearers only, uh, man, then we can live successful lives. And, and that success is defined by you as, as fruit, eternal fruit that, that makes a difference in eternity. And um, man, we just submit to whatever it is you have for us. And I just ask that each and every day um, we would wake up with, with a renewed motivation to just give our lives over to you and allow you to, to guide and direct us because uh, we don't know what we're doing at the end of the day, Lord, but we're confident that you do. And so we just pray that you'd use our lives uh, to, to let your light shine uh, through them in our friend groups, in our families, and in our communities. And, and Lord, I pray that when we meet you face to face, we'll see the effect that you were able to have uh, through us uh, simply because simply because we agreed to, to let you do it. And so, Lord, we're, we're thankful for the opportunity to serve you and be used by you, and we just pray that you glorify or bring glory to you and, and allow us to, to be a part of that. In your name we pray. Amen.